to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Elena Rosenblatt. Elena is a professor of history at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She's also an intellectual historian with a particular interest in the history of political thought. And she's an author of several books, being one of them, The Lost History of Liberalism from Ancient Rome to the 21st Century, which will be the focus on today's podcast. And after our conversation, I'll introduce you to some of the events organized by ELF during this month of September. I'm here with Elena Rosenblatt. Elena, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, before we go into the reason that I have you here today, and that is to talk about your latest book, please tell us a little bit about the path traveled that got you to where you are in your actual position, that is an author, a teacher, a researcher with interest in multiple things, liberalism, republicanism, the European intellectual history. What was the path you took to get you here? Well, I'm actually a Swedish citizen, and my father was a was a diplomat, so I was raised uh, in different places, um, but most of my education has uh, taken place in America. I got my Bachelor of Arts degree and my PhD at Columbia University, where I majored in uh, European history. Uh, as a graduate student, I came across a wonderful professor, as is often the case. They, uh, those wonderful professors inspire you, um, and this one certainly did. His name was Larry Dickey. And so um, he taught intellectual history, and I was absolutely smitten. My dissertation, um, as you know, was on Jean-Jacques, on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, but um, yeah, I came basically to intellectual history uh, through wonderful courses at Columbia University. Now, you're also a pro prolific author. You have several books um, that you edited and some that you wrote. And you focus on liberalism and particularly liberal thinkers from Rousseau. And you just mentioned that, Benjamin Constant. Before we even get to the main motivation to, to write this book, The Lost History of Liberalism, but that has been with you for some time then. Yes, my interest in liberalism uh, goes far back. So my dissertation um, well, and what became my first book was on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Now he's rarely regarded as a liberal thinker, uh, but he certainly influenced pretty much any political thinker uh, who came after him. Uh, my uh, take on him there was um, that I discussed the influence of Geneva on his on his thought. Uh, and uh, you know that he signed most of his main works, Citizen of Geneva. And so I explored what that actually meant and tried to explain his political thought with that in mind. My second book was on Benjamin Constant, and he indeed uh, is regarded now more and more as a founder of liberalism. He's often compared to, uh, to Tocqueville. Both of my books and my approach always is contextual. That's what intellectual historians uh, do. It's a method that looks very much at political thinkers in the context of their time. So we, we look at what could um, this thinker possibly have meant by what he said. To do that, you have to know a lot about the discussions and the politics of the, of the era and do a lot of research on uh, contemporary debates and uh, uh, um, context. 
it is interesting that you say that because knowing a lot and doing a lot of research clearly jumps out of the page with this magnificent book that I have in front of me called Lost History of Liberalism from Ancient Rome to the 21st Century. And I must say, uh, Elena, this is a fantastic read. It's a fantastic piece of work. The detail, the narrative, the historicity. And this is a must-have for anyone that wants to think or it's thinking about liberal values and policies. So right away, congratulations for a, an amazing book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, in the book, you do, you do state right at the beginning that you don't aim to attack or defend liberalism, but to ascertain its meaning and trace its transformation. Can you give us a little more about this rationale? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, as I said, I've been interested uh, in political thought and liberalism for some time. But, uh, and I focused on individual thinkers. But reading about liberalism more, more broadly and hearing it talked about in the media uh, more generally, I found that people uh, who spoke about liberalism often spoke, talked past each other. They weren't meaning the same thing when they spoke about liberalism. They were using different definitions. So, I mean, you know uh, that, for example, uh, the word liberalism means today one thing in Europe and another thing in America. In Europe, uh, in generally, in colloquial parlance, it uh, tends to mean free markets and what we call here small government, if you will. And in America, it means uh, commitment to a more activist uh, regulatory government or what we call big government. So I wondered, you know, how can this be? How did it happen? And I was uh, curious about... Uh, this and try to answer the question. Now, if you read the scholarship and not just mainstream media, there are different definitions, again, out there. Um, individual historians and theorists uh, use their own versions and often come up with rather complex and contradictory definitions. In, American, in America, um, members of the Democratic Party are often called liberals. But libertarians, who are very different in their political orientation, call themselves classical liberals. And yet they're all supposed to have the same founding fathers, which are often um, call, you know, considered to be John Locke, Adam Smith, etc. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, scholars admit um, that liberalism is a difficult word to define, or they say it's a slippery concept. And then they say, well, I take it to mean so-and-so. Um, and I'm going to define it like this. Um, and I, I find that anachronistic. Um, that's not doing the history of, of liberalism. That's imposing your own definition on the past and kind of cherry-picking concepts and people that uh, support your own theory. And, uh, you know, as, as you said, uh, people today, there's a lot of talk about liberalism um, and defending it, uh, attacking it, uh, lamenting its uh, so-called decline, uh, people are horrified at the rise of um, what's being called illiberal democracy or right-wing pop populism. And so in these debates and discussions, I find people, again, throwing words around, uh, but not defining them in the same way. And it makes it hard to have a reasoned discussion. People are, uh, are talking past each other or around in circles. So I asked myself, how do you write a history of liberalism when there's so much disagreement about what it was? What is liberalism? And so I decided to take a, a new approach and write um, the history um, of what people uh, 
have said about liberalism? How have people described liberalism over time? Going back to ancient Rome, what did it mean to be liberal in ancient Rome? And how did this meaning evolve over time until today, basically? When was the first liberal party formed? And what did it stand for? Um, and when was the word liberalism coined? Um, why was it coined? And what did it mean? Uh, so on and so forth. So it's a conceptual history that I've written, constructed really around or based on a history of the word. And uh, the theory or, or the idea behind my method is that if we don't begin with such a history of the word, our our stories uh, about liberalism will be conflicting and even wildly different and contradictory. And I think since you've read my book, uh, this, this method that I've adopted leads to some rather surprising, um, even, even startling discoveries, d discoveries. Indeed, and we'll get into those, one of them in particular, coming up next. But I, I must say that the systematization of knowledge, it's uh, tremendous in your book, exactly that method that you chose. But even if we, before we delve a little more into it, are you a political person? Um, well, I'm a little bit of a political junkie, to tell you. <laughs> I mean, to tell you the truth. I mean, there's the Democratic <laughs> yes. debates this evening. I'm going to be glued to the TV. It's a two-evening affair. Uh, you know, I listen uh, to the pundits, and uh, right now it's just so crazy in America that you can't help but but be interested. And uh, it's a difficult time. Um, I'm not an expert. I'm not a pundit. Um, recent politics is not my my strength or my expertise, but I but of course, I'm very, very interested. But I'm very much a historian. Mm -hmm. Well, it connects nicely to my next question, the fact that you just mentioned that there's such a, a confusion, a confusing environment where we are right now politically. Because one thing that you don't shy away, and it's very valuable on your book, is that you express some of the darkest points in a history of liberalism, from elitism to sexism, racism, imperialism, even defending of slavery, religious intolerance, eugenics. Um, you were very brave in doing this, and I imagine that this was on purpose to show uh, the entire picture. Yeah, you're right. Um, my book is not meant to be an exercise in hagiography or, or a whitewashing of liberalism's uh, sometimes unpalatable history, to say the least. Liberals are responsible, you know, for, for a lot of good in the world. Uh, they fought for laudable principles that we, we cherish today, uh, the rule of law, uh, civil equality, constitutional and representative government, a number of important individual rights. Uh, but liberals also left um, people out of their vision they did not pay very attention or did not advocate rights for women, for example, for a long time. As mm -hmm. you say, there are uh, dark points in this history. Um, many were sexist, certainly by our standards. Um, there was a good deal of racism. Uh, many were imperialists, and uh, this was uh, something uh, combined with uh, this awful uh, thing called eugenics that we call eugenics. I mean, you, you read about their commitment, their belief in white man's burden, for example, or the so-called civilizing process. They often saw the colonized as kind of children that they um, needed to educate. And there is certainly a, a sense of um, Anglo-Saxon 
uh, and European uh, white man's uh, superiority. Now, eugenicism is, uh, is a particularly uh, awful and shocking side, um, so-called race science, um, described by its uh, leading proponent, Charles Davenport, as a kind of a, a science uh, of improvement of the human race by better breeding. Um, there was different types of eugenics, uh, some which aimed to educate people to, um, uh, to a healthy lifestyle, uh, help women have health, uh, healthy uh, breast milk, and so on and so forth. But then there was also this um, more, more uh, positive uh, eugenics, which involved such heinous practices as forced sterilization, incarceration, the prohibition of marriage. And this is all um, for the uh, so-called unfit, the what they thought were, what they defined as the insane, the, the feeble-minded, and even <laughs> epileptics. Uh, it was a very capacious, who was unfit was kind of vague, and, and often capacious criminals um, could be included. In, under that, that rubric because they thought um, that it was due to a kind of genetic defect. But I want to say it's important to realize that looking at liberalism in historical and comparative contexts, I think it's somewhat unfair to single out these dark spots um, uh, as important and heinous as they might be. Um, I don't think that they're distinctively liberal. It's not what defined liberals or set them apart. Uh, mm -hmm. It was uh, popular across the political spectrum. Uh, pretty much everyone was sexist at the time. Uh, and uh, what, what made liberals liberals, what made them stand out as something different was their, their belief in progress, their optimism, their commitment to reform, a stronger notion of individual rights than others had and so on. So um, they were most often more open and usually more tolerant than their rivals. And I say, of course, not all of them um, advocated eugenics. Not at all. Not at all. Many spoke out against it. But, you know, somebody like, like Woodrow Wilson, our, our president, was not only uh, our, I say I'm not American, but I feel American at times like this. Uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson... Um, was an enthusiast about, he was a racist, so we know that, but he was also an enthusiastic advocate as New Jersey government. He signed uh, New Jersey's uh, forcible sterilization laws. Uh -huh. uh, so, um, yeah, pretty awful stuff. I don't, now, uh, I don't know if you want me to go on. I mean, um, in religion, for example, uh, they, they um, spoke about and advocated religious toleration most of them, and church-state separation, many of them, uh, over the course of the 19th century. But uh, they were also very anti-Catholic, many of them. Many, were, many of their most, the most prominent liberals were Protestant, uh, and a kind of enlight what they would call an enlightened Protestant, uh, where they didn't um, focus on or emphasize uh, doctrines like original sin and... Uh, or the afterlife, but uh, but but had a more deistic view of of a religion. They had very little tolerance for dogmas and doctrines and Catholic priests in particular. Um, they found Catholicism a superstitious religion, and they said so. 
was ruled by priests who, after all, for centuries, by the way, had supported what they thought was an unjust political regime. Uh, this is a main reason for their animosity towards the uh, Catholic Church, is that it had been a great support of the absolute monarchy and continued to be counter-revolutionary throughout the 19th century. The Pope, uh, several popes spoke out in no uncertain terms um, against liberalism, calling it all sorts of things, atheists, uh, they called liberals atheists, they called Evil. them anarchists. Sorry? Evil. Evil, evil, satanic. They use the most um, virulent terms, uh, Catholic spokesman for the Pope. And here I need to say again, uh, as a, uh, I hope I'm a, I'm a serious historian, I regard myself as, as, as fair-minded. Uh, not all Catholics were illiberal or anti-liberal. There, there were plenty of Catholics who, uh, who uh, supported various aspects of, of um, what I described uh, before, uh, liberal principles. But they kept, they, they risked uh, uh, being, um, uh, what's the word for it, uh, excommunicated even by the, by, the, by the Pope. And they were constantly, their, their leaders were constantly reprimanded for that, so, which made it very hard for Catholics to be outspoken liberals in any case. Um, yeah. Uh, now, and you mentioned also elitism, and that's very important because, of course, today also uh, liberals are being accused of kind of being elitist, uh, effete, and elitist. And there's an element of, of truth in that. Uh, but I, I have to say, going back, uh, as I do in, in my book, back even to Roman times, um, it was a, an ideal uh, that was expected of an elite. Being liberal meant being um, not only freedom-loving, um, but also uh, generous and committed to the common good. It was thought over the course of, uh, yeah, the 19th century um, that this, that you were, that it, the capacity to be a good citizen was a necessary factor. So the poor and the illiterate um, were not capable of um, being good citizens and therefore should not have the vote until they were qualified, until they gained the capacity. But again, uh, this involved also a lot of duties of the elite. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just that they could do whatever they wanted. They had obligations to the common good um, and uh, they were supposed to, uh, it, was, it was quite idealistic. I'm not trying to say that they lived up to these principles of liberality, of generosity, of freedom, lovingness, of toleration. I'm not saying they lived up to it, but these were aspirational ideals that, they, that was expected of the elite. And some of, that I think is, some of that, I think, is gone today. And that kind of elitism has a good side as well as a bad side. Yes, and... and Good thing that you just mentioned that because that is one of the questions that I wanted to ask you because you do present one of my favorite historical observations about liberalism in your book and that is the moral dimension, uh, the, duty, the duty to others exactly, exactly to make people better, to grow in themselves. And nowadays we did lose a little bit of that. We focus too much on economic freedom, on freedom of speech and all that is very important also. But how can we connect those two things in your opinion? Well, um, yeah, um, as you say, and as I just said, uh, the, the, even the meaning of the term liberal 
uh, meant something moral uh, at first. Uh, commitment to the common good was one. People often talk, talk you know, the root in Latin of uh, liberal is liber, and many people uh, remind us that that means freedom, but it also means generosity. And when you read Cicero carefully, you'll see that he it means by liberal and liberality uh, commitment to the common good, citizenly virtue. Some, it's an aspirational ideal. And throughout the 19th century, uh, this notion uh, remained uh, in, in the term. I should say also that, that being liberal in this way was never regarded an innate quality. It's not something inborn that's sort of instinctive or automatic. You need to be trained. You need to be educated uh, to become a good citizen. And for this, a liberal arts education has been regarded as absolutely essential, going back uh, hundreds of years. And that's also something that, at least in America, is uh, is under siege right now, uh, the notion of a liberal arts education, which was never supposed to be, certainly not about making money. I mean, that's a, anachronistic to, to think um, that that would be what it was, but it was uh, not meant to be vocational. I mean, it wasn't meant to teach you a, a um, to, to become a, a, a saddle maker or or uh, something like that. It, it was meant to uh, prepare you for for citizenship. Um, and um, yeah, um, it's 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 still something uh, that, and it is something I think that liberals today are not talking so much about, at least. Uh, I'm not saying that they don't have a commitment to the to the common good um, in America, at least they do, but they don't stress uh, the moral aspects. Their language uh, focuses on individual rights and choices, and they kind of leave it up to the conservatives to talk more about patriotism and uh, values, uh, traditions, family, um, and, and religion, and so that whole discourse has dropped out or, or has in any case been sort of backgrounded in liberalism, and I think that does not help liberals um, spread their, their message. People, I think, are hungry for that sort of thing. That is a fantastic point, that vacuum that was created, at, at least content, contemporaneously, uh, has been taken over by other forces, not only conservatives, but populists, for example, have been also taking advantage of that, of that lack of message, or at least a cohesive massive message regarding moral dimension of liberalism. Now I wanted to change gears a little bit, because another thing that you present very uh, wisely in your book, and that is the fact that you explain over and over that having a liberal society doesn't necessarily mean having a democratic one. And for example, the Napoleon examples are fantastic ones. Uh, do you think that we can learn from that, those examples in the past and solve some of the problems that we see happening nowadays with so many liberals, with so many liberal tendencies? Um, yeah, let's, let's take um, the first part of your, of your question the issue of the relationship of uh, liberalism uh, to democracy. Uh, people today kind of use this term liberal democracy as it's as if it's uh, totally un unproblematic, or is sometimes, at least in this country, the words are sometimes even used interchangeably, which is um, bizarre. And the early 19th century, throughout the 19th century, liberals would have found that uh, as kind of um, a, um, a, a deep paradox, if. Um, uh, and contradiction. 
Um, my book shows that liberalism, when you follow the meaning of the word and how people explained what it meant at the time, was a cluster of ideas. I think I mentioned before the rule of law, constitutional representative government, civil equality, and a number of guaranteed rights, um, and which I should say the free freedom of religion and freedom of the press were particularly important. And that liberalism, I don't, I don't think I had a chance to mention yet, but it's a main point of my book, was actually born in the wake of the French Revolution around 1810, 1812. That's when the mm -hmm. word was first used. That's when the concept was first theorized. Some people talk about liberalism as going all the way back to, you know, way back in, in English history. Think of it as an Anglo-American tradition, and they speak even about the Magna Carta. By the way, some people say, you know, it was born with Jesus Christ. So the people do take it all the way back, and often they talk about the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, and Constitution. But I, I argue that it's actually anachronistic to speak of liberalism before the French Revolution. That's when the word was coined. Um, now... Uh, democracy, on the other hand, going back to Greeks, uh, meant people power and often direct people power. Um, in the 19th century, when liberalism was born, there was some confusion about the meaning of democracy, too. People used it in different ways. Do you know that in Tocqueville's Democracy in America, scholars have shown that he uses it in approximately uh, six or seven different ways? Uh, sometimes it can mean direct power of the people. Sometimes it can mean representative uh, uh, representative government. Sometimes it can mean um, even a type of society, one in which civil equality reigns. Okay. So um, they don't, they are two different things, democracy and liberalism. Now, early liberals, those who had lived through the revolution uh, of 1789 and the terror, the most radical and the most democratic phase of the revolution were respectful of um, the of popular sovereignty, let, let's say, but also frightened of this people power. I mean, they had seen the violent crowd activity during the revolution. They had seen what happened during the terror. Um, and they, they saw crowd activity as, as violent and irrational. Um, let's remember that the terror happened uh, during the most democratic phase of the revolution. And the most, and the most democratic phase of the revolution was also the most violent and bloody one. Uh, individual rights were trampled upon repeatedly. Um, so, so to so to liberals um, to serve in government and to vote required capacity, you know. And then Napoleon's came along, of course, and uh, and used plebiscites uh, and were popular with the people who voted for them again and again. Um, and so, uh, once again, it showed, uh, kind of the, uh, incapacity of people to know their own interests. This is in the liberals mind, of course. And, um, so, so today we, we shouldn't speak unproblematically about liberal democracy and we should see that democracy, um, might in fact, uh, as the early liberals said, have a have an inherently illiberal tendency or a strong tendency to become liberal. Um, the people power can be a very good thing, but it can also be a very bad thing when um, unmediated, when uneducated, uh, and irrational, and can be manipulated by despots and demagogues. Um, this was also something uh, that liberals learned, uh, sadly, um, because of the, the Napoleon, two, both Napoleons. And it's, it's frightening because 
nowadays you don't even need a despot you can just have someone with a keyboard and a computer and and starts uh spreading illiberal messages that can reach thousands uh, of people and then maybe change an election yes um we're coming to the end of our conversation time flew by and it is the maximum that is true that time flies when you're having fun uh, i would love to have you on the podcast again and, and maybe in the near future i can bring you over again to talk so many of the things that we didn't have the opportunity on this one we talk about one of the things that comes over and over in your book and it's very important of course of course you rightly focus on that and that is the history of women and liberalism you describe describe struggles you talk about the people both men and women that were involved in the fight for more freedom equal inequality can you share a little bit with us the process uh, when for that to come about yes well i do regard the battle for women's rights as a liberal fight uh, today there are there's a a, a vein of, of feminism that questions that and asks very, very good questions like, is liberalism, has liberalism actually been good for women? Um, and, and so forth. But I, I do think that it has largely been, been good for women. Early feminists, or though if that's also anachronistic to call them that, the word <laughs> wasn't there, uh, the concept uh, early on, um, early in the 19th century. But women who fought for rights appealed to liberals, as did the men who fought for rights uh, the rights of women. They appealed to liberals and not conservatives or counter-revolutionaries. They they knew who where their friends or or possible friends were. And when liberals ignored them or flatly refused them. Women turn around and accuse them of hypocrisy, of not living up to their liberal principles. Now, this, um, this in itself indicates that liberalism um, had within it the language and the concepts um, that could include women and should include women, uh, and that liberalism was not anti-feminist in, in principle. Uh, individual, although individual uh, liberals could be anti-feminists. Uh, Let's remember that conservatives were mostly worse in terms of promoting reforms and educational opportunities, jobs, divorce, inheritance, um, um, and certainly the vote. Uh, these changes eventually came from liberals and not um, conservatives and certainly not reactionaries. I don't know if we have time for me to go further, but um, even those who did not... Uh, favor the vote for women, uh, did so on grounds that sound very sexist to us today, but were in some senses empowering for women at the time. They spoke of liberals, uh, of women as companions and sort of fellow workers in the liberal project. They had an important role to play in educating their children to the values that citizens uh, needed. Uh, so, uh, companionate marriages were regarded uh, as very, very uh, important. Now, somebody, an early liberal like uh, Madame de Stael, who is who is frequently left out of um, histories of liberalism, and I hope to correct that fact because my next book is going to be an intellectual biography of Madame de Stael. Uh, People, feminists are are very um, disappointed in her because she never advocated uh, uh, voting rights for women. Uh, but uh, 
you don't need to excuse it's not to excuse her but to explain her that i would say that she thought that women weren't weren't ready for the vote they weren't educated mm -hmm. enough they were very often more religious um, than their than their husbands. This has been proven by scholarship. After the French Revolution, the churches remained uh, full of women, but not so much so much men. So they were liberals. Often thought that the women were uh, too controlled by the priests, and uh, would in fact harm the liberal the liberal project mm -hmm. if they were given the vote. At the same time, Madame de Stael spoke glowingly about women's. Uh, capacity to uh, give to society, to enlighten themselves, to educate themselves, that they had a certain special kind of genius. They were very capable of great generosity, which he thought was so important to a liberal society, and that dependent, depended largely on women educators of children, women educators of men, that they that they um, they refined them, they moralized them, and that this was a, a extremely important job. Uh, so if we really put ourselves in the context of the time, uh, we realize that these liberals, uh, they, they empowered women for, for the times. Uh, it might seem a bit disappointing to us, um, but uh, they, many of them were in that way on the side of women. Yes, it is. Uh, you do mention that uh, on a part where you do talk about uh, two liberalisms, and in particular the feminism and liberalism at the end of the 19th century, because one of the uh, reclamation projects of women that were defending all those values at the time were, we want to be better moms, we want to be better wives, we want to be better citizens. So it was just freedom for the sake of just freedom, it was freedom f with a purpose. And that uh, it's very, it was a very interesting reading in your book. And I must say, Elena, this is a must-have book in the shelf of any liberal, The Lost History of Liberalism from Ancient Rome to the 21st Century from Princeton Press. Please tell us when people can find your work. I have a Twitter account. Um, search for me. Uh, yes, and it's, of course, on the Princeton University catalog, which is online. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast and I will invite you to come again because there's much more to talk about. But for now, it was great to have you. Thank you again for inviting me. I'm back, and before we go to this week's ELF events, I would like to tell you that we are now also on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher, and if you like our podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review, and that way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. Now for some of the ELF events for the next weeks, and we do have a very busy schedule from the 13th to the 15th of this week we have in Slovakia Bratislava young liberals taking charge of Europe united in diversity also from the 13 to the 15 we have the freedom games You're still on time to get a ticket and to go to Łódź in Poland for this event and then going to next week on the 18th in Prague Czech Republic we have the event multiple challenges for transatlantic partnerships 
5G and fully fifth generation of wireless networks will bring new horizons in such areas of Internet of Things, autonomous cars, virtual reality, holographic calls, etc. New possibilities also bring new threats as our society and economies are getting more dependent on technology. It is therefore very important there should be created effective rules and legislation and that security aspect should always stay one step ahead of the speed of development of new technologies. And we are going to continue in Prague, in the Czech Republic, in this particular, on the 19th, which is the following day, of course, and this event is called Multiple Challenges for Transatlantic Partnerships. Between Europe and America, there are many connections, both historical, political, social and economic. And on the other hand, we can observe different attitudes for corporations between both parts of the Atlantic. An international conference, Multiple Challenges for Transatlantic Partnership, will evaluate developments of this partnership, as well as our current status. And then on the 20th, which is on a Friday in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Sarajevo, we have liberal storytelling in the Balkans. And we know that populists and nationalists use a technique of blaming a particular group for some general problem, creating and communicating short, focused and emotional charged messages in order to change the discourse of public discussion. This event aims to understand that process and how to develop a counter-narrative to fight it. To know more about this event and others, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. This is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more conversations. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.